G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We're back again for a second round of the Answers to Giant Questions best of Q&A covering the biblical giants of Genesis 6 and this episode is going to be another round of highlights from previous episodes where we just touch on questions that people have asked because they keep coming up again and again. Hopefully this will provide a nice quick reference for people who want to have those questions answered directly without having to search through the archives. And we're going to do this next week with some more questions, uh, but for now, sit back, relax, enjoy this one. Here are some more of the best answers to your giant questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. This question came to us from the Divine Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook. Tim asked, if demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, what percentage angelic are they? 50% human and 50% angelic? And what then uh, for the descendants? Uh, a Nephilim gets with a human and has offspring 75% human and 25% angelic. When they died, did they become demons too? And what are the third generation and so on? At what point did they stop having enough fallen angel in them to be fit for Sheol and possible redemption? Hmm, that's a good question there from Tim. And the discussion continued on that one with a follow-up question, which came from Stephen. Yeah, Stephen said, it is an interesting point. At what point did the DNA degrade far enough that they no longer exhibited the Nephilim traits? Or is that what we see with some of the people in our current population? A recessive gene that shows up occasionally and we see someone who is seven foot six. I would love your insight on this. And then Ben asked, why is Gilgamesh referred to as two-thirds divine? Hmm. All right. Well, it is an interesting line of inquiry. I guess I want to start by talking about how we use numbers. We tend toward a mathematical approach to numbers in that we see numbers as a reasonably precise way to communicate quantities and calculations, whether it be whole numbers, percentages or fractions, as we have in these listeners' questions. Our general intent in a line of inquiry like this is to get some sense of proportion using numbers to get us a reasonably accurate estimate, if not a precise calculation, or even a formula we can apply as a principle. So you look at a situation like what we have presented in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and we have what looks like material we can extrapolate a formula from. These are three different translations from different versions of the epic. I'm just reading little snippets here. Offspring of Lugalbanda, Gilgamesh is strong to perfection, son of the august cow, Rimat Ninsun. Gilgamesh is awesome to perfection. Two-thirds of him is God, one-third of him is human. The great goddess Aruru designed the model for his body. Here's another one. When the gods created Gilgamesh, they gave him a perfect body. Shamash, the glorious sun, endowed him with beauty. Adad, the god of the storm, endowed him with courage. The great gods made his beauty perfect, surpassing all others, terrifying like a great wild bull. 
two-thirds they made him God and one-third man. And a third one here, surpassing all kings, powerful and tall beyond all others, violent, splendid, a wild bull of a man, unvanquished leader, hero in the front lines, beloved by his soldiers, fortress they called him, protector of the people, raging flood that destroys all defences, two-thirds divine and one-third human, son of King Lugalbanda, who became a god and of the goddess Ninsun. All right, so those are just little bits uh, from various translations of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And armed with this information, I've seen various attempts at working this out based on percentages of divinity. Okay, so option one, goddess plus divinized king. That would be 100% divine plus 50% divine, which equals 75% divine, or close enough for ancient Mesopotamians can't count, can they? So two-thirds, three-quarters, whatever. Um, option two, goddess plus king plus a god working through the king, which would be 100% divine times two plus 0% times one, which equals two-thirds divine, which is good maths if you're dividing by three, but it's terrible biology. Uh, option three, king plus prostitute plus goddess. So two humans, one god, that's one-third divine, so that's not only backwards, but ignorant of the text. Um, option four, this is another one that I've seen, divinized king plus prostitute plus goddess, or 50% plus 0% plus 100%, equals 50% in the three-way split, 75% if you don't include the prostitute. Either way, the figures don't give two-thirds, and we still don't have a third party in the text. Ugh. Sorry, I got distracted. I totally lost where we are. <laughs> Too many numbers. I'm not good at maths. This is really confusing. It reminds me of someone asking how many angels can, can dance on the head of a pin. Yeah, that's why I think we need to stop doing mathematics on this. Uh, the only way to get a correct calculation is to ignore the affirmations of the text. The Bible makes no such claim in terms of proportional divinity. While it clearly prohibits any kind of admixture with the divine, the overwhelming consensus would appear to show that in the eyes of God and Jewish authors across the board, any kind of divine mixture was considered a bastardization and total corruption of the individual concerned. Any notion of considering such offspring as divine or semi-divine is shot down in flames. The Enochic literature refers to them as bastards and reprobates. Their departed spirits are called unclean spirits, and that terminology continues through the Second Temple period into New Testament usage to describe demons. But even in the Septuagint, where these offspring are referred to as giants, or gigantes in the Greek, there's no attempt to preserve some kind of semi-divine nature. There's nothing positive said about them. They're part man, part God, and all bad. What does that remind me of Robocop? Um, so even the Greeks didn't like the giants then. No, we might consider that the Hebrew text preserves divinity in the Anakim giant clans if you go by the logic that the Karam, often translated as to utterly destroy, is a kind of destruction of divine things, which is how some people read it. But the rationale behind Karam is primarily the restoration of sacred space and the protection of humanity by removing what was forbidden. And that was done by destroying the people in question on the basis of their corruption or driving them out. I might just point out as well that we're not talking about moral corruption here. The Canaanites were not subject to Israelite law. So they weren't lawbreakers. 
Um, that's not the same thing as the cherem, which was primarily a devotion of sacred or holy things that would be given to God as a means of destroying things devoted to other gods. You need to pick up the difference in the two words, which derive from the same Hebrew root, but have different pronunciation and different applications. So they're not the same word, but they, they do get translated the same sometimes, don't they? Because there seem to be some scholars that uh, get this messed up too. Yeah, that's right. If anyone wants to know why I don't recommend John Walton's book, The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, this is one of the reasons why. On the one hand, you have Param, which is the exile or killing of the living to remove them from sacred space, protect humanity and restore creation order. And on the other hand, you have Karem, which is the devotion of sacred items, and these are always non-living, to destruction. Walton doesn't seem to be able to disambiguate between the two terms and instead tries to find a meaning that satisfies both applications. It doesn't work. We touched on this recently when we were talking about giving offerings to God. The way you give something to God is to make it unfit for human use. So you burn it in most cases until it's no good for anything from a human perspective. And that was considered then given to God and no longer redeemable for human purposes. And that could be done either to protect humanity from the detrimental effect of using that thing or to give something that is considered holy permanently to God. I talk about this in some detail in my book, just in case you wanted to read more about it. And I show how consistently scripture uses these two terms separately in the way that I've just described. So that little disambiguation is handy because it means that the application of Haram to the giant clans is not an acknowledgement of any alleged divinity of these people, but it does illustrate that they pollute and corrupt sacred space instead of belonging in it. Basically, what we're seeing is rather than the human and the divine resulting in something better than humanity, it results in something worse. They don't retain divinity, they corrupt it. And that corruption is complete and thorough. There's no separating it out or coming back to good from there. So that's the end of trying to work it out mathematically. Basically, if there was any mixture of the human and the divine, that was considered unfit for sacred space and to be driven out or destroyed. And there's no mandate to go out and hunt down the diaspora of the giant clans and exterminate them off the face of the earth. God's basically like, as long as they're not on my turf, I'm not really worried. This is something I didn't touch on in my book because I wanted to remain focused on biblical material and the worldview centered around that. But if you think about what we've been saying on this podcast for some time now about genetic ancestry versus genealogical ancestry and the issue of dwindling proportions of DNA coming from particular ancestors as you move forward in time, I've spoken several times about the fact that once you move about 10 generations, there's no longer any traceable DNA derived from people that far back. It just gets lost in the human genome like a drop of water in the ocean. So now you know that I don't like the idea of trying to find science in the Bible because it's obvious that ancient people simply didn't have a scientific mindset. And whatever God said to them in scientific terms would have been lost on them. And to be honest, God's scientific knowledge is probably lost on us too, so we would be in that same boat. I've said a million times that the Bible is not a science book. But doesn't God actually say something about the 10th generation from an unclean mixture in the Bible? Where have I seen something like that before? Oh, yeah, you might be thinking of this. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you 
Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. And right off the bat, I want to acknowledge the fact that there are stated reasons why this prohibition is in place, and it doesn't say that it's because of genetics or something, and those are perfectly legitimate reasons on moral grounds. God does not need to come out and say to the people that there's a scientific reason for the prohibition as well as the stated reasons that he gives. The people don't really need a scientific reason and they wouldn't understand it if you gave it to them because they don't have a scientific framework for interpreting that prohibition. I just think that it's an interesting coincidence given what we now understand. And you might object and say that the Ammonites and Moabites drove out the giant clans as stated in Deuteronomy 2. But where did they go when they were driven out of Canaan? Also, we have to consider that the stated prohibition begins in very broad, general terms and then becomes more specific as it talks about particular tribes and nations. You could understand this as the prohibition on these particular nations being on moral grounds, but in the broader context of forbidden unions, there's no stated rationale. Now, going by that interpretation, the first verse we read, which is verse 2, stands separate to verse 3 and onward. In that case, there's no stated reason for prohibiting the product of forbidden unions, but there are reasons for not allowing the Moabites and Ammonites, as shown in verse 4. So you look at something like the situation we have with Ruth, who was from Moab and appears in the genealogies of both David and Jesus. The big controversy there was her nationality, not her species. And that's despite the fact that her husband, Boaz, is called a Gibor, which is a term used to describe the Nephilim and Nimrod as well. But anyway, that reading of Deuteronomy 23 isn't a problem, unlike the other view, which would suggest that there was some kind of hybridization which would delegitimize King David. We don't want that. Anyway, this is just speculative, but I do find it interesting, as I said, because it aligns with both the ritual purity law, the encouragement of scripture to maintain brotherly love between tribes, and the genetic evidence we have today that suggests that the human genome corrects basically back to factory settings, if you like, after roughly 10 generations. But all of this is actually quite unnecessary when we recognise that God sovereignly intervened to prevent the continuation of the giant clans. No one ever talks about that. Were they all male? Hmm. All right. Are you ready for this? Were all the Nephilim male? I think this one has a pretty simple answer. Just because they don't get mentioned in the Bible, it doesn't mean that they didn't exist. And you've got pretty much a 50% chance that whatever offspring they had were going to be female. Traditionally, the Nephilim were around for about 1,200 years. So I would say that's plenty of time for them to have had female offspring who would have perpetuated the race. So did they have female giants? Absolutely. So there you go, Andrea. Thanks for the question. I realise that's a very brief answer, but there's not really much I can say beyond the fact that the ancient sources do talk about the Nephilim breeding, having children, and making some kind of practice of aborting their own fetuses. So it sounds like there were female giants giving birth to more of their kind, and you can read more about that in the Book of the Giants. There are translations online if you want to have a look. It's kind of interesting from a scientific standpoint. We observe that boys tend to grow up to be taller than their mothers, and if two parents are of equal height, the boys will be taller than both parents because the mother's genetic makeup 
which makes her as tall as her husband, is going to make a bigger contribution to the genetics of the children. And that's the situation with ordinary human populations. We can only speculate about what that would look like in a population of giants. Danny, asking us via Facebook, asks, can you tell us about the connection between the Egyptian Ankh hieroglyph and the Nephilim? And I'm sure you'll correct my pronunciation of Ankh. Uh, you did pretty well. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's a great question, partly because it's an awesome rabbit trail that we can follow, which ties us in nicely to our core material here, and partly because it's one of the very few questions I've been asked lately that I'm not saving for our coverage of Genesis 2, 3, and 4. We get a lot of questions about all that. But yeah, incidentally, this came up because I commented on a Facebook post that I saw somewhere, and Danny asked for more information, so here it is. Now, everyone's seen the Ankh around, whether you think you have or not. It's that Egyptian symbol that looks kind of like a Christian cross, except that the top part has a loop on it. You find it everywhere. It's got a long history, and the problem with history, as most people do it, is that they read it backwards. I've said this before, and I'll no doubt say it again. Reading modern interpretation back into the past doesn't help you understand the past. It just exposes your worldview and your filters. That's how we ended up with the flat earth hypothesis. So let's dispense with the Gnosticism, the New Age mysticism, and all that key of life garbage that turned up late in the piece. Let's try and do this right. The Ankh is first attested in ancient Egypt, as far back as 3000 BC, but the forerunner to the Ankh goes back even further in ancient Mesopotamia. If you're into Mesopotamian folklore, you may have heard of the tale of Enlil and the Anzu bird. This bird, called Anzu, the heavenly eagle, steals the Tablet of Destinies from Enlil and takes it up high and far away out of reach. The other gods try to retrieve it. Depending on the version you read, the hero of the story varies according to the date of the text, in one, it's Ninurta. In a later one, it's Marduk. You know, insert relevant deity here. The, uh, the Anzu, incidentally, is born of the union of heaven and earth. Now, that should ring some bells for anyone who's been studying the giants. The important thing to remember is not the specifics of the particular version, but the general theme as a trope in literature. The heavenly eagle ascends to a high, and therefore divine, place, having taken from the god something he was using to rule the world. Now, if we fast forward to Egypt and uh, 3000 BC, the depiction of the Anzu bird has been simplified from a feathered anthropomorphic demon with claws and wings and a bird of prey style hooked beak to a simple stick figure of an ascending bird in flight with its head uppermost, spread wings and tail feathers outstretched. And this is the Ankh. The simple pictogram is now a symbol of ascent toward the divine and power over destiny. For this reason, the earliest examples of it are found in association with royal and divine persons. A famous example of the use of the Ankh to convey ascent is in the carved relief at Dendera in Egypt in the Temple of Hathor, which is called by science fiction historians, and I'm doing air quotes, um, the, the Dendera light bulb. Now, this symbolic carving shows a sacred boat and a snake ascending from the middle of a lotus flower. But since the image looks to a modern person very similar to a light bulb, 
well, some people just can't let go of that. If it looks like a light bulb to me, then it must be a light bulb. Even if there is an inscription right there in the carving that says, the snake ascends from the lotus of the ship. The hieroglyph translated as ascends is the Ankh. And as I said before, this is why we do history forwards, not backwards. <laughs> so the, uh, the ancient aliens, that guy was wrong? Oh, yeah, it wouldn't be the first time either. <laughs> but the, uh, the Ankh symbol is not just a simplified picture of a bird. It's also a visual representation of the cosmic tree motif. For those of you who have read Answers to Giant Questions, this will be familiar turf. The tree reaches up to the sun in its attempt to achieve divinity. At the top, we have the solar deity, head of the pantheon, and beneath is the tree reaching up towards the heavens. There's a famous passage that tells a cosmic tree story. It's very well known. I'm talking, of course, about Daniel 4. Now, here's part of the passage uh, in the King James Version from uh, verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher, and holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquillity. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power 
and for the honour of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. Alright, so that's the end of the passage. Now we all saw the cosmic tree there, right? But uh, did you see the Anzu bird? The watchers are observing the king from on high when they see him go too far, attributing his success to his own power and majesty. As a result, the power to rule the world is taken from him, snatched away by a creature that has the power to declare and enact the king's destiny. And what does Nebuchadnezzar resemble after his seven years of madness? It says, His hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. Nebuchadnezzar physically resembled the Anzu bird. That's something I've uh, never seen before. Yeah, two powerful ancient tropes overlap here in Daniel 4 to convey the age-old story of the king who tried to be a god and got cut down. On the one hand, Nebuchadnezzar is the cosmic tree reaching upward to claim divinity. On the other, his destiny is snatched away from on high while he descends into madness and eventually comes to resemble his assailant. How art thou fallen? Here's another example from scripture, again familiar to readers of Answers to Giant Questions. This time we don't see the Anzu, but it's an Egyptian context, so that aspect of the trope is less relevant. Here it's all about the tree. We're going to read Ezekiel. God is using a motif that the Pharaoh can't miss because it's embedded in Egyptian culture. Here's the text of Ezekiel 31 from the King James Version. I'll just read verses 2 to 11, finish with verse 18. Son of man, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude. Whom art thou like in thy greatness? Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches, and with a shadowing shroud, and of high stature, and his top was among the thick boughs. The waters made him great, the deep set him up on high, with her rivers running about his plants, and sent out her little rivers unto all the trees of the field. Therefore his height was exalted above all the trees of the field, and his boughs were multiplied, and his branches became long because of the multitude of waters when he shot forth. All the fowls of heaven made their nests in his boughs, and under his branches did the beasts of the field bring forth their young, and under his shadow dwelt all great nations. Thus was he fair in his greatness, in the length of his branches, for his root was by great waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide him, the fir trees were not like his boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like his branches, nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches, so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Because thou hast lifted up thyself in height, and he hath shot up his top among the thick boughs, and his heart is lifted up in his height, 
I have therefore delivered him into the hand of the mighty one of the heathen. He shall surely deal with him. I have driven him out for his wickedness. Then verse 18. To whom art thou thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? Yet thou shalt be brought down with the trees of Eden unto the nether part of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that be slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. Yep, I definitely caught the, uh, the tree symbolism there. Yeah, well, this passage couldn't be clearer on the cosmic tree language. The tree is a divinized king who has a place on the divine council, but overstepping his bounds, he's disgraced and destroyed. In the book, I talk about the reference to the Assyrian and how this same name is applied to Nimrod elsewhere in Scripture. What should be clear now is that the idea of the misguided human endeavor to become godlike is an attempt at an ascent to glorification. The Ark symbol represents this connection between humanity and deity, connecting heaven and earth. The vocalization of the Ark as a word was similar to our modern pronunciation based on the spelling when written in script which has remained largely unchanged aside from differences in dialect. The basic triliteral root, A-N-K, remains and is found in many ancient Near Eastern languages. It shouldn't surprise us then to find that this root appears later in Greek and also in Hebrew. What may surprise you is what that means for our interpretation where we find it. When the Greeks emerged from that Egyptian culture, they called their divinized god-kings by the title of Anax. These were said to be the sons of Zeus Arbios. Arba means tree. Sound familiar? This practice was not limited to the Greeks. It was also found in Anatolia, where the Hurrians had come out of Mesopotamia. And that leads us directly to the biblical sons of Anak. So Joshua, chapter 14, uh, verse 15a. And the name of Hebron before was Kiriathaba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakim. And in Joshua 15.13, And unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he gave a part among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. And again in Joshua 21.11, And they gave them the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, with the suburbs thereof round about it. The biblical Arba was a man, probably a divinized king of the Anakim. He would have been contemporary with Og of Bashan. Wasn't Og the guy who had the really big bed that was like 13 feet long or something? He was a giant? Yeah, yeah, he was. But the bed wasn't made to fit him. It had another purpose that we might talk about another time. Despite the Greek connection in the uh, terms Anax and Arbios, there is still a distinctively Egyptian flavour to the accounts of the Anakim, as seen in Numbers 13.22. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Note that the three names mentioned are Egyptian names, and the author gives us some Egyptian context by mentioning Zoan in connection with Hebron. And, as if we needed reminding, the Anakim were giants. Uh, when we read Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, 
The Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emims. Emim means terrors. And Deuteronomy 9 verse 2, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? So what does Anakim mean in light of what we know about the history of that title? Well, it doesn't mean long-necked. That's a play on words that takes into account the Hebrew word for neck and the fact that they were tall. The Anakim were the ascended ones or lofty ones or something like that. The title doesn't mean tall, but it helps that they were tall anyway, as we saw in Scripture. It doesn't mean high up, but it helps that they lived in the mountains of Canaan. This is about that ascent to divinity on human terms, first by Nimrod at Eridu, then by others in the cult he started. Performing necromancy rituals to use death magic for power, the inhabitants of Canaan transformed themselves into physical giants, indwelt by the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And that is why the author can say in Numbers 13, verse 33, And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. And so we were in their sight. And so we were. How tall do giants get? All right, so yeah, let's talk about the height of the giants. And in order to do that, we need to get a bit of background on who they are and where we get this idea that they actually were tall because you don't find it in Genesis 6. So what I'm going to bring you now is based on a blog post that I published a few years back and which you can find on my website. This was published back in December 2020, and I might expand or elaborate on some points of this beyond the original content of the blog post in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, the Anakim are introduced to Bible readers. Unlike ourselves, as modern Bible readers, the people of Israel were what we call a high-context audience. They were not just relying on scant written records. They were living out the experience and immersed in the culture. Ancient Israelites had a much better grasp of who the Anakim were than we modern readers have traditionally had. So what did the Israelites know that made them so afraid of the Anakim? Why would the biblical author connect them with the pre-flood Nephilim, a word that translates as giants? Israel had just left Egypt and knew of the Anakim from Egyptian interactions with them. Archaeologically, we have evidence of Egyptian contact with the Anakim from the now famous execration texts. The purpose of these was a kind of magical ritual for cursing one's enemies. The fact that Egyptians considered them formidable enough to require sympathetic magic against them tells us that they were no ordinary enemies. Joshua, as military leader under Moses, was likely of Egyptian heritage. you notice his father's name, Nun, is probably Egyptian. If anyone in the group was going to be familiar with the Anakim, Joshua was most likely. I've actually had a lot of objections to this, and uh, if you carefully read through the Exodus and the account of who actually came out of Egypt with the people of Israel, uh, you'll find that there was, in fact, a what I think the King James calls a mixed multitude. 
Caleb was the other non-Israelite of the group. He was a Kenizzite and uh, as such was familiar with the people groups concerned and not worried about how to deal with them. That's why he later took their capital, Kiryat Arba, that is um, Hebron. The remaining 10 spies were faithless in the face of the Anakim and never made it into the Promised Land. It's kind of interesting because um, that means it was actually the non-Israelites in the group who were who trusted God and the Israelites themselves, the remaining 10, were uh, disloyal and, and didn't trust God and were afraid. So what's in a name? Mm, Anakim does not mean long-necked. I hear that a lot. That comes from the assumption that Anakim is a word of Hebrew origin. Now, I'm not saying that it couldn't be a Hebrew wordplay on the idea of being long-necked, but that isn't where the word comes from. In fact, it has early Egyptian and later Greek derivation, hence the connections with proto-Greek cultures like the Hittites and Hurrians and later Phoenicians, from which we get Perizzites, Philistines, etc., Actually, you can trace it even further back into ancient Mesopotamia, but we haven't got the time for that. I covered that elsewhere in case you want to search the website to find the relevant podcast episodes where I talked about that. The royalty connection is exemplified in the Anakim. The biblical account tells us of some of the kings among the Anakim, the sons of Anak. Anak is not just a name, but also a title from the Greek Anax, meaning king. It's one of the many titles of Apollo, who had a temple in Athens dedicated to the worship of the Anakis, protected gods, similar to the Mesopotamian Apkalu. The Bible tells us that the Anakim, or more accurately, Ben Anak, sons of Anak, were descended from a man named Arba, father of Anak, after whom was named Kiryat Arba, city of the tree, later called Hebron. The name Arba comes from Arbion, a verdant mountain on the island of Crete, featuring a prominent temple to the deity Zeus Arbios, god of the tree. According to the ancient Greek author Pausanias, in his work The Description of Greece, the father of Anax, named Asterius, was said to be at least 10 cubits in height. According to Homer, Anax was an archaic title most suited to legendary heroes and gods, rather than for contemporary kings. Taking it back further, the Egyptian derivation of Anak can be traced back to the earliest hieroglyphs. The Ankh is a symbol that looks like a Christian cross with a loop on the top. In its earliest use, it was intended to describe a spirit within a person, not their physical organic life or quality of being alive, but a spirit within the person. This was originally not for the common man, but was used of divinized rulers. In other words, it represented a different spirit which imbued the king with the qualities of the deity. The hieroglyph shows a tree reaching up to touch the sun and is suggestive of glorification or deification. We now see how it is that the author of Numbers 13.33 was able to say that the Anakim come of the Nephilim. So what the author is telling us is that it's the spirits of the giants from before the flood that are at work in the bodies of these people known as the Anakim. That's right. This image is maintained in the Greek use of Anax when we consider Zeus Arbios and the idea of the deified ruler represented by a tree on a mountain that reaches to heaven. In the Bible, we get this imagery in Ezekiel 31, a passage that connects us back to that enigmatic character known as the Assyrian or Nimrod. He was the guy responsible for a man-made mountain that was built to reach heaven. 
Seeing Babel as the origin of royal human deification makes sense of all these ethnic variations of the concept. It ties in with the worldview that Scripture presents, showing that the nations were subjected to the rule of lesser gods following the rebellion at Babel. Those who had participated at Babel became the divinized rulers of the nations, imbued with the spirits of the Nephilim, and recognized as such by their tall stature. They were known by many tribal names, but collectively they were called Anakim, the Ascended Masters. Okay, so we get the idea that they were tall, but how tall were they? In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2, we get some idea that they were of some legendary height. Let's read from Deuteronomy 2 verses 9 to 11 and 19 to 21. From verse 9, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Emim. And down to verse 19, When you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamim, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. So now we have some scripture that also confirms that they were tall, and we're not just relying on ancient records from outside of the Bible, but it still doesn't tell us exactly how tall they were. There are only two people in the whole Bible whose height is actually measured in units. One of those is an Egyptian who's not given a name in the text, but is described as being five cubits tall. A cubit is approximately 18 inches or 45 centimetres in length, so at a minimum, that guy is seven and a half feet tall. That's assuming a common cubit that would have been in use by Israelites. But this is an Egyptian, and that raises the possibility that the Egyptian cubit could have been in use. Egyptian cubits were bigger, so now we're talking about eight foot eight. That's a big dude. And keep in mind that every so often people of that kind of size still appear in modern culture today. This isn't impossible even by modern standards. Of course, the other guy in scripture whose height gets measured is Goliath. And I know he probably needs no introduction to this audience, but I will just remind listeners that depending on which manuscript tradition you're reading, you're going to find different heights recorded for Goliath. So in the Masoretic text, he stands at nine feet nine, and in the Greek translation, he's six feet nine. You'll notice that there was no dispute between manuscript traditions about the height of the other guy. And that leads me to conclude that the Masoretic text reading isn't necessarily out of the question. So what other evidence do we have? Another thing to consider is what I was saying earlier about the connection between kings and rulers and these giants. And we know from the book of 1 Samuel how much the people of Israel wanted to have a king like the kings of the other nations. So who did they choose as king? They pick a guy who stands head and shoulders above everybody else. They literally chose the closest thing they had to a giant, literally the tallest guy in Israel, who was Saul. Right, this is Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Right, that's the, the key bit there at the end. Uh, and then we go to 1 Samuel 8, verse 19 and onwards. 
But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. On to chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So what does that tell us about the nature of the giants? Well, it tells us that we shouldn't expect them to be any bigger than exceptionally tall people are today. Because when we look at what the Bible has to say, instead of the extra biblical material, which isn't the inspired word of God, we find that these fanciful descriptions of giants who are well over 10 feet tall and even up to ridiculous sizes like 3,000 L's or cubits, uh, as recorded in the book of Enoch, we can see that these were actually too far removed from the kind of people we can still find living today. That's a wrap for this episode of the podcast. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.